Good morning. So, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Adam. I lead the leadership team here. Um, and, um, yeah, this morning I'm... This morning I'm teaching. This is something I used to do quite a lot. I haven't done at all this year. Um, so this is the first time um, this year that I've been up here. Um, and that's because my year started in quite an unusual way. Um, I got to Christmas. There's been a lot going on. I think we all know we're a busy place, we're a busy church, we're a growing church. We'd been through the pandemic, we'd navigated being a vaccination centre and the growth of the families projects and the, all the different things that happen here and um, as well as restructuring our our trustees and our bringing in a new leadership team and a new staffing structure and a new strategy team and relaunching our vision, mission and values, uh, values all good things to do. Um, but I got to Christmas and um, took some time off and um, the best way I can describe it, I came back or tr- thought about coming back after Christmas and I don't know if you go to bed at night and your phone's on 10% and you put it on charge and in the morning you expect it to be on 100%. But I got up in the morning of January and it wasn't on it wasn't 100% it was on 1% and it hadn't charged at all and it had gone a lot lower and I just and I kind of I contacted Rob who's chair of government uh, chair of trustees and my line manager was just like Rob I just don't I cannot imagine coming back at this moment I just don't know if I've got anything left I feel like I've hit this wall I just had nowhere to um, go with it and so what we did, we were supposed to have a leaders weekend away and we decided that we would carry on with our leaders weekend away but rather than talking about vision and values and mission and all that sort of stuff, we were just like, let's just get together and hang out and pray. It's a good thing for leaders to do. So, um, so we did. And um, it's very apparent there, you know, and I, the team were great and the trustees have been great and they're like, look, you're not okay, you need to take some time off, take as long as you need. And um, we'll be okay. And that's a huge delight for me that we were okay. Um, and I could focus on me. And um, it was a tough, it was a tough few months. It was a tough three months there that I was off for. Um, it was challenging in all sorts of ways. I had very little. I figured I had about half an hour's energy a day that I could use. Um, at the beginning, which is not like me. For those who know me, I'm about them very driven, full of energy, full of ideas, full of go. I'll be the busiest person in the room with the most ideas and all that sort of stuff. And suddenly that wasn't me anymore. And I had to find a different way to be. And I had to recover and I had to rest. I had to breathe and I had to pray. And I had to um, stop because I didn't really have much other option other than to stop. But it was a really formative time for me as well. It was a time when I got to spend quite a bit of time with God. Um, it was a time when I got to rest and I got to reflect. And my ambition wasn't to come back and get back to what I had been before. God had, in his grace and in his mercy and in his love and in his blessing, God had already said to us, what's got you here isn't going to get you where you're going. So I tried to pay attention to that and what had got me here wasn't going to get me and us where we were going so I felt I'd already sensed maybe there was a requirement for a new posture there was a requirement for a new 
way of leading, a new way of being. And I think one of the pictures that God gave me, right on that first weekend, I said, yeah, I feel like I have this picture of this really brutal climb, this really brutal ascent through forests, woods, and tough terrain. And I felt like maybe we got to the top. And I, at the top, I just was on my knees in this clearing. And I was like, I just don't know if I can't push anymore. And God was like, you don't have to push anymore. Change your posture. Let me take it from here. Not the easiest thing for an activist to do. Not the easiest thing for someone who's used to being the busiest person in the room to do. Um, But God started talking to me about being an unbusy leader. What does that look like? What does that look like for me? Um, So it's been an interesting journey. And what was interesting for me is coming out of that, I knew that was a picture for me, but I did wonder whether that was a picture of some also maybe for us as a church. And it was really interesting that in my absence, the leadership team decided also maybe this was a year of Sabbath for us. And um, how does the church do Sabbath? And so you started looking at some of the fruits of the Spirit. I think the teaching's been really exciting. Um, we've decided to do something quite different over the summer and not gather to do the church in its traditional sense, but to gather, to be together and to be community and to share life together and to eat together and to have fun together, which is an act of worship in itself, particularly at a time maybe as we emerge from a pandemic where we've all become quite disconnected when we've gone through so much change, having that act of worship where we reconnect and restore, I'm quite excited about. But there's this idea of Sabbath. What does that look like? And so I thought as I come back, maybe I'd share a little bit today about not the entirety of Sabbath. We don't have that long. But um, some of the thoughts, maybe, some of the lessons, maybe, some of the things that I've been exploring of what Sabbath can look like and why Sabbath is such an important Idea, And so we've talked, talking this morning, I titled it Sabbath and the Gods of the Age. And we will see where we get to with this. God gives the command about Sabbath in Exodus 20. And he, um, Exodus 20 is a response. The Israelites have been in slavery for 400 and something years. Like they've been suffering in the, in the culture and in the empire of Egypt. They've been oppressed. They've been enslaved. There is this culture of more and more and more. More bricks with less straw. You have to produce and produce and produce. Right at the beginning of Exodus, we are told that what they're building are storehouses. Which is interesting because at the end of Genesis, there's this dream that Pharaoh has, this anxiety, this anxious dream that Pharaoh has of maybe not enough. And there's these seven fattened cows, huge cows, but then there's these seven thin cows and the seven thin cows eat the fat cows. And he's going, what does this even this mean? And Joseph interprets the dream and says, this means there's going to be seven years of plenty, but then there's going to be famine. And the famine is going to be brutal. So what God wants you to do is to store up so you have enough. For the suffering that's coming, for the famine that's coming. God wants you to store up so you can, this was an act of love, this was an act of provision, this was an act of generosity, so you can provide for your people, so you can provide for the nations around you. 
But Pharaoh took it and he put Joseph in charge and it didn't become this act of generosity and kindness and justice. It became this act of oppression because they just took all the food that was there. And then they, when people didn't have food anymore, then he took their money and he made them buy it. And then when he took their money and they didn't have any more money anymore, then he took them as slaves. And he occupied their land and he took all their money and he took their humanity and he took them as slaves. And in Exodus, we see these slaves, hundreds of years later, still building storehouses to store grain. And they weren't just building storehouses, they were building whole cities. Interestingly, we have all sorts of archaeological digs that have discovered whole cities along the banks of the Nile, which are just for the purpose of storing the wealth of Egypt. It was never enough. This, this idea that these people weren't people, they were just units of production and productivity. These people would, weren't, weren't humans in their own right. They were just commodities to be used for the growth and the, and the expansion of the empire. They were driven by expectation. Every time they hit their quota, their quota was raised. And this, every time they did what they were asked, then they were asked to do more. They didn't get days off. They didn't stop. There was this incessant, unquenchable desire for more and more and more. These were the gods of Egypt. Well, you had to work harder and work harder and produce more and create more. Also, at the top of the pyramid, if you'll excuse me, the pun, they could have all the wealth and all the power. The gods of Egypt were demanding. And it meant that there was no rest for the slaves it meant there was no rest for the taskmasters either. It meant there was no rest for Pharaoh. We see verse after verse after verse of Pharaoh asking, why have they stopped? Well, I need them to work harder. I need them to do more. I, we need more bricks to build more cities, to store more grain, to amass more wealth. There's no rest for anyone. People are commodities and units of production. There is this whole system built. There's this systemic drive for more and more. The insatiable gods of Egypt demand your life, your all. And everyone lives in this anxious restlessness, as Brueggemann calls it. This anxious restlessness, never enough. You can never rest. You have to produce more because the people of power at the top are never satisfied. Thank goodness it's not like that anymore. Hey? Eh? Thank goodness those days are gone. In that context, God hears the cry of his people and says, I will save my people. And he frees them from Egypt. He frees them from slavery. He frees them from this oppression. And then in that context, he brings them into the wilderness and he gives them the law. Now here is a lesson that I think has immense wisdom for us to hold on to. The law is always about liberation you see we are conditioned to think because we grow up with the same gods around us 
that the law is all about expectation. The law is all about not enough, and you're not enough, and you're not good enough, and you've not achieved enough, and you have to do better, and if you want to be holy, and if you want to get to heaven, then you've got to try harder, and you've got to push harder. You see, our religious gods aren't very different from our Egyptian gods. We create the same system, and so we make the law about oppression, and we make the law about expectation, and we make the law about not enough, and the law creates this anxious restlessness inside us. But the law is always about liberation, not condemnation. You see, God had saved his people geographically. But now he needed to save them spiritually. He needed to save them culturally. He needed to save them socially. Let me put that a different way. God God had got the Israelites out of Egypt. But now he needed to get Egypt out of them. He'd got the Israelites out of Egypt, but the Egypt that had become rooted in them, God needed to extract from them. And this is why he gives the law on Mount Sinai. This is why he gives the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the law. This is why he brings them to, instead of being a people of commodity, he invites them to be a people of covenant and relationship. You see, we have these ideas that God is this sort of top-down power imposes stuff on us because that's how we've always experienced power in the gods of the age power is done to us and what god shows them in the law and in the covenant what god shows them in the wilderness is this god isn't like that this god is different And so he gives them the law, you shall have no other gods beside me. You should not make yourself images of other gods. Don't grave images out of commodity, out of wood or out of stone or out of silver, out of gold, out of precious things. Don't don't carve images of me. Don't restrict me to commodity. Those gods are like that. Don't define me in that way. I am a god of relationship not of commodity. I am a God of covenant. And then he says, don't take upon yourself the name of God as a follower of God, but then live in opposition to my nature. Don't live and assume that I am the same as those gods of Egypt. Live in the ways that I've called you to live. And then he gives the fourth command. He says this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Can you imagine what this felt like to a nation of people who hadn't had a day off their entire life? And now God's saying, yeah, six days at a time, people, seventh day, rest. They're going, what? But... Who's going to make the bricks? Who's going to build the cities? Who's going to, who's going to get the food? Who's going to... What? Day off? It's not always easy for us to accept that sort of gift. Can you imagine how they felt? On it you shall not do any work, 
But not only should you not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals. This isn't just about you. This is about your family. This is about your community. This is about your servants and your slaves. This is about your animals. You all get to rest. And not just you who are my people, also any foreigner residing in your town. Anyone who is amongst you, around you, near you, whatever faith they may be of, whatever heritage they may be from, all of you get to rest. You don't get to create rest by displacing your work onto other people. Because you just maintain the anxious restlessness of life when you do that. You all get to rest. For an activist, not an easy lesson to learn. For in six days, here's a theological basis. God's going, look, I know this is mind-blowing stuff. So let me give you the theology behind this. Because he's generous like that. He goes, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. He's alluding back to the creation story right at the beginning of Genesis. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He's going, look, right at the beginning I created all things. You think you're busy? That was a week. I created everything. And on the seventh day, I revealed myself to be a God who rests. I didn't check in on creation to make sure it was still creating. I didn't check in on the plants to make sure they were still growing. I didn't live out of an anxious restlessness. God rested. And if God can rest, then he invites us to rest. If we're going to be people who follow God, he invites us to be people who rest too. You see, this God is different. God is revealed as a God who hears the cry of his people. This is not a God who demands more and demands more. He is not a God of oppression who causes people to weep. He is a God who hears the cry and saves. He is a God of compassion. He is a God who provides. As soon as they came into the wilderness, God provided manna for them every morning. These people who had had to work for everything they'd ever had were provided for freely every morning. And God said, Don't store it up. That's Egypt. That's the Egypt way, that's the gods of Egypt way that you store and you amass and you'll turn it into a commodity and you'll start selling it to one another. No, you don't get to do that with this. All of this is a blessing. All of this is a gift. And he gave them manna because he's the God who provides. But even then, he said, for six days. And on the sixth day, collect double because you don't even need to collect it on the Sabbath. You're going to rest. It's all 
a gift. He's a God who liberates, not a God who enslaves. He's a God of covenant relationship, not a God of commodity. He's not embracing us or calling us into his family because of what he thinks we might be able to do for him and how we might be able to make him look better or bigger or whatever it might be. He is a God who calls us into relationship. He is a God who sees us, who hears us, who knows us, who loves us. And calls us into relationship. He is a God of love, of faithfulness, of compassion, of mercy, of grace. This God is different. This God is holy. Another word for holy is different. Set apart. This God is different. And you see, in the New Testament, Jesus is walking with his disciples... And he's, um, the disciples are picking heads of corn as they're walking through the fields on the Sabbath. What a beautiful way to spend a Sabbath afternoon walking in the footsteps of Jesus, picking heads of corn and just snacking as you go along. Sounds idyllic, right? The Pharisees weren't so sure about this. They were like, no, 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 no. Look, that's working, that's harvesting. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. We've made, out of this one law, we've made a lot of laws about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. How far you can walk and how far you can't walk. What things you can do and what things you can't do. What you, how you prepare food and how you're not allowed to prepare food. They've made rules about everything related to this. See, because we've turned the God of covenant relationship into the God of expectation and demand we've brought this God of restfulness and we've turned into a God of anxious restlessness and Jesus calls him out he goes no no people you've misunderstood the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath this is a gift for you And you've turned it into expectation and duty. So I think sometimes we do the same. Well, God expects that I need to do this. And if I don't do this, then God's going to be angry with me or disappointed in me. Or God's going to not bless me in some way or punish me in some way. Or I'm not going to be good enough in some way. And so that anxiety, you can feel it, right? It's a gift. It's all a gift. We are invited into relationship as a response to the gods of the age who tell us that everything is about expectation. You see, the gods of the age of today aren't a whole lot different. The gods of not enough. It's why we talk about giving differently here. We don't talk about giving as something you must do. You should all give 10% of everything you earn and you need to give it to God for the work of God so we can do this. No, we, I believe that giving is a privilege that we're invited in to do, but we don't do it out of expectation. We do it because out of liberation. You see... Whenever we get that pull from the gods of our age that says, I don't have enough. 
And it's around a lot at the moment, right? The antidote to that message, to that anxiety of not enough that sits within us, the antidote is to give. To live in a different story. That's how we teach. So we can all talk about that another time. We talk about giving differently here. But there's not enough. We always have to have more. We always have to produce more. How terrified do our news channels get when someone mentions the word recession? And everyone goes panicking and the government starts panicking and the markets start panicking. Do you know why they're panicking? Because this year we produced maybe 0.1 of a percent less than we produced last year. Oh my goodness, no. How we get to survive? But you see, the God is that we always have to have more. Whatever we produced last year, we have to produce more next year. And it's an illusion. It's an illusion that our current government's been making advantage of because everything went down in the recession and we produced hardly anything in the recession. So now they're going, oh, look at our growth. Look at the growth we did in 2021, 2022. Aren't we amazing? We grew so much. Yeah, but from a very low point. They look at our, they, it's an illusion because there's this message that says, we, however much you produced last year, you have to produce more next year and we have to have more and we have to produce more and we have to consume more this year every year they measure how much earth resource day they call it what day of the year is it that we hit the point where the earth is the population of the earth we have consumed all that the earth is going to produce in that year from then on, we're over-consuming. This year, the prediction is that's going to be July 28th. The year I was born, 1971, it was December the 25th. We over-consumed for a week. We're now over-consuming for five months. There's a problem in these gods of the age that tell us we have to have more and more and more and more and more. It doesn't work. The gods of the age of productivity and commodity and what we have and that you're just a cog in the machine that produces for the powerful and the rich at the top this drive of expectation the need for security and we have to have savings and we have to have our pension pot however high we can have our pension pot and we have to have our money tied up in stocks and shares or property or whatever it might be all the same gods as the gods of Egypt I would add one individuality seems to me to be a god of the age Well, you believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. You do what's right for you. I'll do what's right for me. We don't really impact each other. But it's a lie. It's a lie. And God gives us an alternative by inviting us into community. That we do this together. So when we choose to Sabbath, 
which can be gathering together, it can be, but it can be all sorts of things. When we choose to Sabbath, we see Sabbath as resistance to the gods of the age and as an alternative to the gods of the age. When we gather together, we say that we're part of a different kingdom. When we worship and pray together, we declare ourselves part of a different reality. We declare ourselves part of a kingdom that says that we receive, not because we receive, not because we have worked or earned it or achieved the standard or that we've won in some way. We receive because we are loved by God, because we are created by God, because we are known by God, and because we are community. God has already done it. God of all creation has already provided. We don't have to live in this anxious restlessness, even if it's just for a day. We get to say, today, I'm going to live in restfulness knowing that I am God's and that I am loved and that I am known and I don't have to strive. I don't have to prove anything. I am with God and God is with me. You see, we are part of a different kingdom where all things are created by God. All things are from God. All things are a gift. There is enough, and you are enough. And it's hard to learn this. It's hard for an activist to learn this, who's used to doing a lot of stuff, who's being very busy, driving lots of things, making lots of things happen, and learning to say, I'm now just going to do what God's doing. I'm now going to spend my time with God and seeing what he's up to and responding in the ways he calls me to respond. This is a lesson. This is a journey. This is not something I have cracked yet, but I'm doing better. That's it. And we live in a different economy. See, the economy of the world tells us that you've got to win, that you've got to have, and that what you having is often at the expense of someone else having but you've got to win and you've got to be the strongest and you've got to be the richest and you've got to be the fastest and you've got to be the most beautiful and you've got to be the most successful and you've got to be the whatever it is and everything's a competition. It sets us against each other and at odds with each other and at war with each other and creates this anxiety within us and this economy that we declare ourselves part of, even if it's just for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, this economy says as we give... As we give, so we receive. As we forgive, so we are forgiven. As we bless, we are blessed. As we include the outsider, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, so we are included in God's family. As we love one another, God is revealed. 
Because Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Not at odds with each other, not at war with each other, not in competition with each other, not trying to outdo each other, be more holy than one another, have better prayers than one another or whatever it might be. We love one another. We create space for God to be expressed and revealed and encountered. We curate mystery as we encounter this whole other way of being. And we extend and practice love as a community. And it leads to a different fruit. Rather than the fruit of the world, which is envy and rage and jealousy and anger and greed and sexual immorality and all those different things, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's a different kind of fruit. This is the kingdom that we are part of. This is what Sabbath is to be. It's this act of liberation from the gods of the age. And it can look like all sorts of things. It can look like gathering together. It can look like prayer. It can look like worship. It can look like eating together. It can look like generosity. It can look like sharing. It can look like rest. It needs to look like rest. Sitting with Jesus. Being silent. Sharing communion with one another, having fun together, and sharing those sacred moments in life that surprise us from time to time. The things we didn't see coming, the moments of trauma or grief or whatever it may be, and we get to walk those moments with each other, together with God. And it's sacred, and it's holy, and it's Sabbath. Matthew 6, I can invite the band up now. In Matthew 6, it says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve the gods of Egypt and Yahweh. God, Jesus goes on to say in the next verses after this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You're not much more valuable than they. Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? 
you of little faith. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. The pagans serve all these gods, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, worry is a reaction. Worry is a result of that anxious restlessness. Worry is a waste of our imagination. And Jesus says, don't worry. Tomorrow will worry about itself. So I've got a little paraphrase of Deuteronomy 30, if you'll forgive me for that. So I present before you life or death, blessings or curses, Yahweh or the gods of this age, covenant or commodity, restfulness or restless anxiety. Choose life. Let's be a people who Sabbath well. Amen.